Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society, and this is the after show for Mostly Dead Things. Mostly Dead Things was written by Brian C. Brown and Jessica Lee Williamson, based on the book by Kristen Arnett. Brian uh, is a writer from, uh, he's written on About a Boy and Briar Patch and Legion and wrote the film Lucy in the Sky. Jessica has written on I'm Dying Up Here, F is for Family, and Medical Police. Uh, they're both also veteran storytellers from The Moth, which uh, we talk quite a bit about and which I found quite fascinating. It seems to me that The Moth is an underused potential path to television writing. And it's a path where there's really no barrier to entry. It's not like trying to get a job as a writer's assistant. Uh, you know, you come up with some stories, you put your name on the list, you hope you get up there, you know, you give it a shot. I, I think uh, it's, uh, I found it really, really fascinating. Um, I also found out that Jessica was behind a brilliant piece of conceptual art that many of you who live in Los Angeles may remember. We talk about Florida, we talk about adapting books. You know, I really like these two, and it was a great conversation. And I want to thank Diane Fraser at Industry Entertainment Partners for sending the script my way and for just generally always being a real supporter of this podcast. All right, here is my conversation with Brian C. Brown and Jessica Lee Williamson after a brief message. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely, and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about uh, this... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. And okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on Maximum Fun... Org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. Brian, Jessica, welcome back to Dead Pilot Society. I am excited to talk to you about uh, Mostly Dead Things. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having thanks. us. Thanks for having us. So first of all, you alluded to this in the brief interview we did before the read. Are you both... I'm assuming from Florida. Well, Brian is from Florida. <laughs> I am so from Florida. Uh, yeah, I born and raised in Florida. Didn't get out until graduated um, college. I spent like, you know, a few of my early years there and then my late teens, early 20s, partially in Miami and then partially in Orlando, very close to where Brian grew up actually but we didn't meet while we were living there we met once we moved out here okay and brian where in florida were you you're near orlando so I, but where yeah so the, i grew up in uh, a small town called oviedo it's the former celery capital of the world um but they lost that title sometime during world war ii um <laughs> but it's the kind of place where it's like that's still the thing they have it's like at some point we had celery <laughs> Is there like a big celery monument in the town or like yeah, a... the big thing is the chickens. Uh, there's like wild chickens that 
live in downtown LA, uh, downtown LA, downtown Oviedo, um, that like the entire town is like declared a bird sanctuary in order to protect them. And uh, like they're on all the signage and stuff. Uh, and they have, I think they have like a Twitter account, but uh, <laughs> they live in a Popeye's parking lot. So like people stop to like admire these chickens on their way in. For like a two-piece and a biscuit. <laughs> um, what? Where's the? Where's the celery capital now? Oh, I have no idea. I like. There's, there's not they, some we, bitter rivalry. Never spoken still? of. Never okay. spoken of. Yeah, other other. I doubt other towns are like. I think we could get in on being this <laughs> celery capital of the world, guys. There's not. They, they, I mean, not to spend the whole time talking about it with Vito, but they went from growing celery to now the main crop is sod. So it's just like fields of grass that then turn into fields of dirt like halfway through the year. Thrilling that's, place to grow up. That's just a perfect Florida town. Just a sod growing central Florida yeah. town. Um, so had you had either of you read the book before it was brought to you? How, how did the book come to you and how did you get involved in the project? Well, the book actually came to us before it was published like before it came out for other people to read it. So, um, you know, in that, I feel like it would have grabbed my attention. Like I had read about it coming out ahead of time. Um, but so to Tony Sabastina, who is this really wonderful producer we worked with, um, I had met him like a year previously in a general meeting, which really like in Hollywood, Nothing, nothing ever comes. <laughs> no, they're the most useless and and biggest part of this town. It's like, oh, I got to go to this. And really, you know, I like I've always I adore Tony, but especially what made him, me adore him is I had had twins like three weeks before I met him. And he was like my first meeting back. And I told him and he didn't even like bat an eye. We just hung out and talked. He didn't like let you know, the fact that I just had twins consume the conversation. And then we really, you know, like enjoyed each other's company. And then a year later, he wrote me and was like, Hey, I've, I'm getting the rights to this book. Um, is it something you'd be interested in? And then Brian and I have written before in the past. Um, we have a working relationship. We both write on our own, but then also sometimes together. And it just, I just felt like it was um, a Brian and I project, like the moment I read it, because just the tone of the book was very much like something we both love. And the, you know, obviously the Florida aspect of it. And, um, and so, you know, I immediately told Tony, well, I, I want to, you know, I think my writing partner that I work with sometimes Brian and I could like really do this well. And so then Tony met Brian and now they like work on all their own stuff together. Um. <laughs> I remember when you reached out to me about it because I, I'm a huge fan of Kristen Arnett's because she's like such a great writer about the place where I grew up and the place that I'm obsessed with. And she had an, uh, an essay in Lit Hub about just like what it means to write about Florida that I'd read and was just like everyone I knew that everyone I know from where I grew up, like, sir, we like hand that essay. We like send that essay to people be like, 
un- this is how you can understand this crazy place where we grew up. So I was looking forward to this book and I couldn't really believe it when Chris, when uh, Jessica was like, hey, a producer reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in doing this. And, you know, you never stop talking about Central Florida. So maybe we should do it together. Uh, and it was it's been awesome. Like, it's also crazy to think about any of this because this all happens like in person. Like we oh, sit yeah, at a restaurant. We, yeah, we sit in a restaurant and talk about this book instead of, you know, so much of the development process has been like, you know, over Zoom and that garbage. Yeah. I know it is hard to remember those days when you actually would get together at a place in person. Yeah. So tell me how, how did you two first meet? Oh, uh, Brian and I met through The Moth. So okay. um, The Moth has like... Uh, open mics here and Andrew people get very competitive (laughs) and the most competitive person in the moth world is Brian C. Brown. (laughs) So, um, initially like we just competed against each other, but you kind of feel like, you know, the person, even when you don't have a conversation because you're like telling stories about each other and so brian and i actually have very well we both i think we have very complementary writing styles and admire each other's writing but we also have very similar backgrounds because brian's mom is cuban and my mother is also cuban and then um you know we both have like very american dads um our parents got divorced when we were very young and we lived with our moms I spent a lot of time in Orlando. Brian obviously grew up there. So what what other commonalities would you say? I, I So I, we got in trouble in a lot of the same places without knowing each other. I think that was because I, I remember very, very distinctly going to sign up for my first ever Moth Slam and you were in line in front of me uh, and you signed up. It was like one of your first ones. And you told a story about like working at a campsite cafeteria. Uh, right about working yeah. with Yellowstone cafeteria. Yeah, Yellowstone cafeteria. And I, I remember that. And and you're right. Like I am the most competitive person in the world. It's a real fault of mine. Like my my wife gets very upset. My wife would like come to those with me, and would have to like judges would change their scores and knock me out of the lead, and I would like actively boo them from the crowd. <laughs> and my wife would be like, Brian, like you cannot do this. Um, So I I was like, I'm very bad. Uh, I'm a terrible person. But one thing is like, I didn't mind losing to Jessica because like she was absolutely my favorite storyteller there. Like I just remember just like hearing her stories and being like, here's somebody who gets it. Here is somebody who is like funny and miserable in exactly the right way that I get and relate to. and you're right, like we'd heard each other tell these like personal stories on stage for so long that at some point we were just like, I think standing next to each other and I was like, oh, hey, like we should probably be friends. And then immediately became like very great friends and like almost immediate collaborators. But I then found out that Jessica had done something that I was like a huge fan of before I'd even met her. Cause when I first moved to LA, there were these signs these like signs all over the east side uh of they were cat found posters 
about like a cat that had been found, but the pictures were clearly of a rabid possum. <laughs> and it was right. like these, th- and, and they were the, f- I, I remember seeing them and just being like, okay, I'm like in a place where there are people that, that I'll be able to relate to at some point. And I remember taking a picture of one of them with my phone. And then years later when we were friends and just hanging out and you were like, oh yeah, I did this project and I made this cat found poster. And it was you. It was like, it was yours. I was like, oh man, I I knew we should be friends. Uh, and-, and also like, I also want to like sing Brian's, um, you know, praises because while he's very competitive, he's also uh, very generous. And I got a manager because of Brian, because he gave my script to his manager. And, um, you know, that's another hard thing in Hollywood that sometimes friends don't want to do for other, other friends. And, um, but he did. And so, you know, I got very lucky in that regard. And then we were out like to lunch or something one day catching up. And then we kind of were talking of, we wrote the script called trying together um, just because it was kind of coming at it like, the male point of view and the female point of view of having kids, but in the way that the female doesn't want to, and the male does. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we loved that script so much and it was so fun to write. And really our process was we just met at Senior Fish, which is basically what we did for Mostly Dead Things too. We didn't really write at first. We just met at Senior Fish and just talked about it, you know, once or twice a week for a while until we, thought all right we're ready to do the outline and then our process is kind of to hand it back and forth to each other do a little more rewrite the other person's um you know brian came up with the rule which i think is a really good good one you can change the other person's thing over and over again and then if you still want to fight about it we have like one one like session at the end of it when the script is done where we like argue it out which i think has worked really well right like you don't take it personally if someone changes it and then if you still feel strongly about it on that final day when we're doing the run through we can like you know argue our points to why we think it should be this or that and then you know come to the conclusion um that's a great rule because there's probably things where in the moment you're like, no, you can't change it. But then if some time goes by, a lot of those probably fall by the wayside and a couple remain. Yeah, I feel like it's only worth having the big fights over things that you can remember weeks after they're out of the scripts. Like if they've stuck in your mind like that, then it's worth having the fight over them. If not, you know, move on to the next thing. Okay, so this is like, I want to hear more about that process of adapting this, but I want to back up because we've, you know, so many of the writers we we have on this and so many comedy writers, you know, a lot of them come out of UCB or an improv background of some kind or something. I don't think we've had any storytellers, anyone coming from, you know, the moth and, the, and that scene. And I'm just, because I know very, I'm familiar with the moth. I've heard stories, but I don't know very much about that, that, that whole scene and how you sort of get started and, you know, what was your path to getting to the moth um, and starting to be storytellers in that way? So well, I the think one thing on, I on like Mott- to say, oh, go ahead, Brian. 
No, you go for oh. it. Oh, well, I always <laughs> tell people the moth is the most democratic opportunity in Los Angeles because it's not about who you know. It's not about who your friends are. They literally pick names out of a hat. So if you're one of the 10 people who get picked out of the hat, it doesn't matter if you like showed up to LA that day, like you get to go on stage and tell a story in front of 300 people. And, um, and I think it like, it really allows you, there's no like moth class. They don't like teach a certain way or teach a certain art form. You definitely like, I feel, learn from the storytellers you're watching when you compete. But I think it really, really, really encourages you to hone your own voice in a way that like other classes and things I've taken haven't. So what were you going to say, Brian, about the model? Well, I I was... I was going to say that on my end, like, you know, I'd moved here from Florida to go to film school at USC, which didn't really work out. And I dropped out because I was like, you know, I, I sold a Hallmark movie while I was at I, I sold the script for a Hallmark movie while I was at USC. and was like, oh, this is it. I'm a writer now. Um, and then took the thousand dollars that I got for this like non guild project or whatever and was like, oh, I, I these will just keep coming and coming and coming. And then you know, didn't work for seven years and just had to get like assistant gigs or, you know, I donated sperm for money for a while. So it was like, it was rough, but I needed, but I was like working, I was writing on these things that were just going into my desk drawer and I needed some sort of outlet, like just to show people, like I am trying to do something. And at first I tried stand up and it was terrible and I was terrible at it. And I just remember like, I just couldn't handle the constant need of stand up like that that stand up you just need that next laugh like it is I just felt constantly like I need the next laugh I, I need the next laugh and it's just never the way I've you know I've told stories or the way I write like I I do think that I come at things from like a comedic angle but I also really like to make people sad too Um, so I needed a place where I could do both. And so it was like, oh, the moth is this thing of like, I don't have to be funny for the entire three minute story. I can just be funny for parts of it. And then I can also be like, you know, I'm also this sad kid from Florida who, I don't know, had a rough childhood. Um, and that, and that it was like, I think that this might be a place where I can do that sort of thing. And I went, I signed up and it was just like you play you just like tell stories to these massive crowds and they eat it up and it was just it was a really great really constructive thing for me and a nice way of like getting some sort of validation for the work that i was doing when there was no validation anywhere whatsoever yeah it's a really like great way like when you're a struggling writer and wanting people like there's no validation you know what i mean like when i mean even now like while you're writing like you can like write an awesome scene and you're the only person who knows it (laughs) you know so like the moth was like it's really wonderful in the way that i think specifically writers it like gives you the outlet to like start something and feel the finish of it by getting to perform it in front of you know when we do the grand slams it was like five or six hundred people at those things you're like you know if you're a nerd it's like the closest to feeling like a rock star you know 
you'll ever feel like. Well, I, I, I remember we did a show at the Echoplex uh, where Jessica beat me, uh, I should say. Uh, a Grand Slam at the Echoplex where Jessica beat me by 0.1 points. Uh, and then the Rolling Stones played that stage like three months later. And it was like this ridiculous thing of like, I stood on stage and for five minutes told a story about when I worked as at, in college, when I worked at a books a million and was having like a mental breakdown and was shoplifting books from the store on this same stage that like, you know, huge bands that I admired that had played sold out shows. It was like, it really was an opportunity that I wasn't, that we weren't getting anywhere else uh, to be recognized for our writing and to, you know, keep at it a bit. And and this is revealing my own ignorance, but is there a bit of a moth to television pipeline? Are you aware of some other moth storytellers who are working TV writers? Um, I think there's a couple. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ones, you know, like, um, like uh, my, the first time I tied with um, a storyteller who was better than me, his name is Kemp Powers, and he's like an Oscar winning writer now um and you know i don't i mean i definitely think like saying like oh i did the moth like you know i think that makes people think you're interesting but i don't think that there's like a streamline like oh we got to get more moth writers on board a lot of people are like i don't know what that is and then um but i also think like it attracts people who you know, really love writing and really love story in the way that television, you love story. And so, and it's, you know, like it is like storytelling in its simplest form, but it's like the exact same building blocks. And I think if you want to do well at the moth, you kind of, you know, I'm not like, it doesn't always have to be funny, but even if it's funny, like it still has to have meaning to it. And I think, you know, that also lends itself to television writing, at least the kind that Brian and I do, you know, where it's like, yeah, we want it to be funny, and but we also want it to mean something and, you know, have heart and to love these characters and that sort of thing. So I, I don't know if it's like a moth to television writer pipeline, but he means like as much as I wanted it to, like I would never walk off the stage to like a huge round of applause and then somebody standing there being like, here's a job like that <laughs> never happened, unfortunately. But I, but I do think I think you're right, Jessica, like it taught us so many of the things that we use as writers now that I think make us stand out in rooms and stuff, because like the way the moth will work is like there's a story slam and they have a theme. It's usually like a one word theme. And then you have to find a story from your life. It has to be a true story to then tell on that theme. And it just I think it really got us both really great at just like mining our own lives for story and bringing a personal touch. And I remember like my first staff writing job ever, I was in a room and I just felt so different from everybody there. Cause I'm from Florida. Nobody there is like really from any place other than New York or Los Angeles. Like it was also like a room where I think I was like the only person whose parents were divorced, which just seemed like statistically insane to me. And, and I ha I realized like I don't have the experience. I don't have I haven't been in a room before, but what I do have is like a bunch of stories that I'm sitting on from my life 
that I think can work really well. And and I then had like the sort of the thought process and the the way of like uh, doing the math equation of being like, okay, we're looking for this sort of story point. Here's a thing that happened to me when I was like 17 and an idiot kid that can that can really help us get to that place. And I, I think it's it's helped us a lot at that. I know we said general meetings are useless and they are, but we're really good at them because we can just, you know, I could just do my my solo show that I uh, had performed uh, places and people yeah, I was gonna are pretty say, wowed a way by bigger that. Pipeline uh, so solo it, shows from <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah the lucrative Ma- the lucrative the solo show the lucrative a world of, really of solo shows memoirs um you know do the moth too like but for me personally like i just i started to feel really limited by only being able to tell true stories and only being able to talk about myself like i just kind of i got to a point where I just wanted to take a break from talking about myself and I wanted to talk about other people, you know? And so, um, and what was the first, TV uh, my job first TV job finished? was I'm dying up here, which was a showtime show. Um, the showrunner was Dave Labot, who is like the most insanely talented writer I've ever met in all honesty. Like that guy is just firing on all cylinders and it's brilliant. It was a really wonderful first experience. Um, Felt really lucky to get it, but they were looking for someone who could write comedy and write jokes, but also write drama. And so I felt like I just kind of like slid. And also they were like, it was a last minute hire. Like they needed to hire someone quick. So I was like, oh, I feel like I could get this one. And so, you know, it's just like all the stars aligned for it and it worked out. And what were you submitting for that job? Were you submitting spec scripts and also some of your moth pieces or what? Um, so like I always wanted to do stand up, uh, not to be a stand up comedian, because like I really am a person who's like I could perform in front of 30 people or 300 people. And it's like equally as joyful to me, like it's not about the size, but you know, there are things like things you want to write about or talk about that, like, you can't write about it in storytelling, really, because that's not the point. Or it's like, you know, to me, like, stand-up's, like, really about, like, kind of asking questions, where storytelling is, like, more giving the answer. And so um, I took a class for stand-up, because I was like, I don't have it in me to, like, go out and do... And also I didn't have the confidence either to be like floundering at open mics. So I took this really wonderful class where the teacher was like, don't tell anyone you're taking a class. Um, do not tell people. But I was like, well, I don't care. care. And so by the end of it, you have a 10 minute set and you make a tape at the Ha Ha Cafe in North Hollywood, which like, you know, like com- a lot of comedians would be like, haha cafe you know like they would they would kind of be like all right i don't know how much of a comedian you are but so um yeah they with that reel from my class um which you guys i did have some pretty good jokes on there just being honest (laughs) can you give us can you give us i haven't done stand up one joke time (laughs) I don't want to ruin yeah, it. Yeah, if, it, to, if like, one comes to you at any point in this, 
Bang. You were good. <laughs> yeah. You were so good at your haha cafe set that you got yourself that you got the thing that I was dreaming about every time I was on a moth stage. You came off and they somebody gave you a job because of it. That's But I you know what? But that also you saying that the reason that they hired you on that show is because they wanted somebody who could write jokes and stand up, but also do dramatic stuff. That's the one of the, I think the big thing that we have in common that might be from our storytelling experience with the moth or just, I think is also sort of wired into who we are as people. Like, I think we both for all of our career, people haven't known exactly where to put us. Like I remember my first staffing season, I had this dramatic pilot about like a con man who has Alzheimer's and forgets who he is in the middle of a con. And it was like, it was bleak. It was like bleak and sad. And then I'd go in these general meetings and my manager would get a call after and be like, this guy wrote the saddest pilot we've ever read. And then he was just making jokes the entire meeting. Like, what is he supposed to be doing? <laughs> and I was just like, well, I didn't know that for dramas, you were supposed to not be funny. Like, what you're just supposed to go in the meeting and meet, make people cry, I guess. I, I didn't understand it. Um, and I think it's been a real benefit to us. And this project, you know, definitely has had those. The development process is a long road of people being like, what is this? Um, but but like funny and sad or dramatic. At the but same also time like, you know, mostly like dead things. It's we've... like. It's pretty dark. You know, and like, so notes that we would keep getting is like, it needs to be funnier. And it's like, I don't know how much funnier it can actually Like, I don't think we're, um, I don't think we're adapting this book any, at some point if we don't, if we keep making it funnier. Like, we've both written on comedies. We can write jokes, but it was like, it, it doesn't feel like that's what this book is, you know? Um, I have the opposite problem of Brian where like, I'm just much better at like writing my jokes. And then when I go to meetings, people think I'm very serious and they're like, I don't understand how this person's funny. Um, so it's like, <laughs> look, it's difficult. Cause often you're in a meeting with people. I mean, this isn't true of like a showrunner meeting, but if you're meeting with execs, sometimes those people aren't funny. It's hard to be funny in a room with people who kind of aren't funny, <laughs> unless you're truly like such a performer. Like I'm just going to go in and do my, my bit, which I think is probably, Brian, what you're saying is like, you kind of have those, you have those prepared, I don't want to call them bits, seems, I mean, I guess they're bits, but it's, yeah, they you can bits. go in and do that, which is a real skill to have because you often have to come into a meeting and bring all of the energy and all of the fun in with you. You're not getting any of it back uh, from the other side. So if you're someone who maybe is funny when you're talking to another funny person and you can get like some rapport and rhythm like that's you're not getting that in one of the one of these meetings and also if there's like an expectation for me to be funny <laughs> that's like i can get i get it a crash i relate to that meeting. very much like if i feel um one time i one time i was walking into like a showrunner interview and my manager called me like literally three minutes before to say like oh i just want to remind you this is like this is the meeting where the warner brothers executive wasn't sure that you were funny enough for this show so really like <laughs> bump, up, <laughs> bump up the humor i was like well i'm not getting this job like i knew like the moment someone who's you know hired writers and put together staffs i think when I, if i see the moth 
on someone's resume. I guess what I'm thinking in my in, in the overly simplistic way you have to think when you're doing this is, oh, this person is probably kind of a real writer and is probably someone who isn't just going to be jokey and might know how to structure something with a beginning, middle and end. Because often when you have pure standups on a staff, like they're just giving you hard jokes that could be put in sort of any character's mouth, but aren't specific to a character. Um, and it's often not that helpful uh, where it seems like, okay, you're going to, you're going to get us not hired on things as moth writers now. <laughs> no, go ahead. Jen. What's the two edges of the sword? Well, the two edges of the sword is like, you know, the moth is like known for storytelling and that's great, but there's a lot of comedy shows that they just want you to write jokes. And then they ask you the question. So many people ask you this question. So many showrunners, do you think you'd be like, do you think you're stronger at jokes? or at story. And then if I were like jokes, they'd be like, yeah, but you did the mall for like six months. <laughs> so it's like, I can't say not say story because that is true. Like I've like taught storytelling. I just like am a total story nerd, even though I can totally write jokes. My, you know what I mean? And there are some people who are like, oh, I don't want story. I want jokes. And then it's like, Okay, and I'm not a good liar, number one, but also I feel like it would be such an obvious lie if it's like all over your resume that you're a story nerd and then, you know, like not a whole lot of comedy. And then you're like, oh, I got, you know, like I'm just living, breathing comedy. It's like they would know that you're <laughs> telling the truth. First of all, that's an embarrassing question for a showrunner to ask. And it's just no one should ever ask that that question and expect an answer to it. Um, so I, it's... Uh, it doesn't surprise me, I guess, but it bums me out that people ask that question. Me too. The way I always, yeah. the way I always said it is that I would much rather be uh, the funny person in a sad room than the sad person in a funny room. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't <laughs> really work that, because Brian. it doesn't really work because people are so miserable on comedies. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I. I, I get that question too of like, but do you do joke jokes? Like, nah, you know what? If you if you need somebody that's like gonna do the math of a joke, I'm not the writer for that. Um, but you know, if you need somebody to talk about how they were gonna fake their own assassination at their high school graduation, <laughs> I've got that bit prepared. And I think that's a little harder to find. Hi, it's me, Dave Hill from before. Here to tell you about my brand new show on Maximum Fun, the Dave Hill Good Time Hour, which combines my old Maximum Fun show, Dave Hill's podcasting incident, with my old radio show, The Goddamn Dave Hill Show, into one new futuristic program from the future. If you like delightful conversation with incredible guests, technical difficulties, and actual phone calls from real-life listeners, you've just hit a street called easy. I'm also joined by my incredible co-host, the boy criminal Chris Gersbeck. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Dave. It's really great That's to... That's enough, Chris. And New Jersey chicken rancher, Des. Say hi, Des. Hey, Dave. The Dave Hill Good Time Hour. Brand new episodes every Friday on Maximum Fun. Plus, the show's not even an hour. It's 90 minutes. Take that, stupid rules. We nailed it. The tone of this piece, you know, is... I mean, I guess it's overly simplified. You call it a dark comedy, um, I, I guess. Um... It's a unique tone. I mean, FX makes sense as a place that would take a chance 
on a show like this. It's funny that they were still saying like it needs to be funnier. Um, but you know, I can see there's not a lot of places that are you know, looking for for a show with this sort of mix of tones. Um, yeah, we're really finding that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't read the book. I've re- I read a bunch of reviews of the book, um, uh, you know, to get a sense. But I want to get into so okay. So y- you said you were just sort of getting together and talking in general terms about the book. Did you ever do any kind of like breaking the book down into beats? Any kind of note carding, that kind of yeah. thing? We didn't. We didn't do note carding. I wouldn't call us unless you're doing it in private without. Yeah, I, I did. I did We're some in my I, I, on my own. Like as I read the book, I was breaking it down and trying to think. I, I think when we when we sat down to adapt this, there were two big questions for us, uh, and they were what to do about Prentice the father and what to do about Bryn, uh, Milo's wife and and Jess's you know love interest for the uh, in our show. Um, because the book opens with Prentice has already killed himself and Bryn left the family years before and is just like a haunting presence through the entire book. And so we sold a comedy that is based on uh, both a, a father's suicide and a mother like abandoning her children with her husband and his sister who she'd been having an affair with. Uh, so we're like, this all seems so hilarious. Let's just <laughs> dive into the misery. And so I remember those first conversations were just like, what do we do with all of these things? Because we th- we felt like they were rich, great story points, but not necessarily like the starting place for a comedy. And we, you know, the book is very much, it's, it's so interior on Jessa and it is so Jessa's story. But we thought, this is a family that we like know and that these are this is a family whose story we want to tell and the way to break this open and turn it into a show is to make it a show about the family and so what are the decisions that we will make and so there were there was talk about like let's save the suicide for the end of the first season let's you know have it just be everyone is still here there was talk about having Bryn gone and 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 not doing this like there was all kinds of conversations about like what of the miserable stuff do we think we can get away with in our comedy um and i think what we settled on i still think it's the right answer even though you know uh the show is not on the air um was to to that the suicide really needed to be the thing that kicks it all off and puts jessa in this situation but that there was so much both fun funny stuff and dramatic stuff that we could do with a love triangle between a brother and sister and like their childhood best friend that Bryn just, and and she's such a vibrant presence, even in the book where she sort of like haunts it, uh, that we were like, Bryn has to be a character on this show. And that, that like, I feel like so many of those first lunches were just like, what are these changes we make and how do we do it? Uh, for the show as a whole, not just, you know, this pilot. Yeah, it, it seems to me that, again, not having read the book, but to, to keep Bren as a part of it was a really smart decision. She's a great character. Once I sort of read that in the book, she's 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 gone. I understood like that laundromat scene a little bit more. You know, it's a little bit 
I think purposefully mysterious, like what's going on with her? Why is she just absenting herself? You know, in these moments, you can tell there's some sort of deep dissatisfaction, but it's kind of unclear where that's going and knowing like, okay, you, you know, if you were heading towards that thing, that's where the book begins that she's gone. That makes a lot of sense, but she's so great. And the, the triangle that is revealed at the end is really interesting and launches you well into series um yeah we have like a whole episode that we wanted to do where it's like um Bryn disappears and they think she's been like you know like something's really wrong so it's like missing posters calling the police like going on the news and then they find out at the end of it that she just left them that uh, she had left by choice and which somehow in a way like feels worse right than if the something happened to the person yeah um and so like you know we always had the intention of her leaving before the end of the you probably like i would say like a little more than halfway through the first season um but but yeah, I'm with Brian on it. I think I still stand by that choice and think it was the yeah. right choice. It, it also says so much about us and what, like, the tricky tone of this show and everything we write that we were like, wouldn't it be really funny to do an episode of a whole family that thinks they're, like, this woman has gone missing in some horrible way? There's search parties <laughs> in the... And then you end the episode with the police sitting then down and being like, no, she just left all of you. She wants no contact. And we're like, and that's hilarious. Uh, How much of the plot of the book had you sort of used up in this pilot episode? You know, we actually really didn't use so much much of it it. was created, I would say. Um, I mean, other than the dad dying and the fact like that they're poor um like that you know there's trouble in terms of paying bills and and there's a version of the mom's erotic there is a version of yeah, yes so, yeah the, the discovery because that, that happens kind of later so maybe that's what that scene is the closest thing to the book but the rest of it i feel like it was all um it was all stuff we built yeah. out and really a lot of this season would have been stuff that we built out the second season would be more um present day like more from the book the story would have been because in the book jessa meets like an art curator and kind of like falls in love with her and you know all this stuff but as we were in the writing process i will say we did keep getting pushed and you know which is true to all television always like ooh, make like the big stuff happen sooner so our season finale was supposed to be that scene with the uh, with Libby revealing her art, and then you know it ended up being in the pilot, which right, yeah, that's 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 sort of towards the climax. That scene is something very similar to that happens in the book, but that's sort of in the climax of the book. Um, I, I think we did have a, a long time where we were like. Uh, the mystery of who was doing this art was going to be part of the show. And like, you know, everybody needs a mystery. Uh, And then at some point it was like, it's so much more satisfying to get into her mom is making this art and it makes her very uncomfortable and what it's like to be up against that. So yeah, I, I think there's actually, 
there's so much material given that like the Bryn Milo Jessa relationship, we've pulled that like back to like well before the book even takes place. And uh it was it's one of the, the fun things about adapting books into TV series is that it's like everything you use everything that you can, but you've got to tell a story that goes hopefully longer, because you know, we didn't we didn't write this being like we're just going to write this pilot. You know, we, we, there was definitely so many points in all of this where like, you know, Jessica, Jessica would send me, a, Jessica would send me a scene and it'd just be like, well, this is like one of the best scenes I've ever read. I'm so excited about this. There's no way this show isn't going to happen. I can't wait till we write, you know, this, this, like our flashback episode for season two is going to be this. Yeah. Right. That's just there was like one scene in the book that we because it, it takes place like throughout all their lives. So part of it is like when they're teenagers, part of it is present day, part of it, you know, like was earlier in their adulthood. And there was one scene of Bryn, Milo, and Jessa when they were teenagers that I think like really makes you understand this love triangle in a way that it's like hard to take aside of it. And it's just a really beautiful and kind of haunting scene and so we did want to like really just do that scene as an episode like you know um maybe you know like right before the end of it where it kind of like flips this relationship and you see that like jessa and Bryn were actually kind of together well they were together first like secretly you know like teenage girls making out and then milo came in and it's just like much more complex than i think mm. like you can reveal in a yeah. pilot episode in a way that like makes you, you know, root for these people and kind of feel for all of them. Yeah, that's I mean, just hearing that would be such a great episode it sort of reminds me of an episode of I May Destroy You. I don't know if oh, you I guys love that watched show, that, yeah. but there's a great full, yeah. there was a great that great flashback episode where you mm -hmm. get back to seeing them at school. Maybe she did a couple times, but um, yeah, that that would have been a great sort of standalone episode to all take place, you know, when they're in high school. Um, maybe execs should hopefully are listening and hearing that. But, and, but, uh... but that's, that's <laughs> always the struggle with writing these pilots like this. Cause like, look, Jessica and I both, we've done, we've written pilots together. We've written pilots separately. Uh, neither of us have had any of them go yet, but like you have this like wealth of material, like, like we know that's like the eighth episode of the first season and we know it like inside and out, <laughs> but there's no way to have it be part of like, you can't just cram it all into the pilot. Yeah. Like, look at all this stuff we're going to get to. It's, it's a, uh, you know, I think we're still trying to figure out how to be like, this thing has legs. It's not going to be miserable the whole time. Uh, let us get to this stuff too. Um, and and Brad, so you were just working on Bad Monkey, which is also an mm -hmm. adaptation. It's an adaptation of a Carl Hyacinth yeah. book. And yeah. so was that, I know, was that a s similar, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure what I'm asking, but it's another book adaptation. And were you figuring out how to like pull pieces of that book and spin them into episodes and what to take and yeah, it, and it's an, it's another Florida book, another mm. one of those books where it's like uh, I'm there to be like, oh, this is what Florida is really like. Um, 
and were you and the yeah, Florida writer in the room? Were you the I, only I was Florida one of, guy? I, there, there were there were there were other Florida writers there. It was great, uh, and I'm very excited about the show, and it's going to capture a very strange part of a very strange place. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love that puzzle of. I think books are really, really good as like the starting point for TV shows, um, and I think I think part of it comes with that, like that story brain that we were talking about versus like story or joke. I think it's I I like the math of figuring out here's this book. How do we take this and tell as much of this story as we can in a TV show, but also you know keep the plates spinning and and all of that because books are written towards an end and tv shows i mean i guess we're supposed to say we all we all know like how this how this story ends but i'd much rather be you know trying to figure out what the sixth season of mostly dead things is than figuring out how to try to wrap it up what are your other because i'm you know i was i was born in florida but moved very young but my wife grew up in clearwater for high school and went to U of F and yeah. spent a lot of time there. Who are your other favorite uh, Florida novelists? Oh man! Oh man! Um, this is one of those questions I ask, and it just makes your mind go. Back I don't read. Yeah, it really, it really. You're talking to two people with young, young <laughs> <You're> children. <laughs> yes, I get it. Like, All right. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. I bomb. I bomb that. No, no, no. I, I just I just didn't know about Kristen Arnett. Oh, yeah. You know, I've like read like Lauren Groff and some of the other. Uh, yeah, know, Lord, Lord, Lord Charles, Charles, Charles Williford, who I love. Um, yeah. But, you know, until. But Andrew, who is pilot, your who do you like? I, I love taking uh, writing um, reservations. Lauren Groff is great. Or recommendations. Uh, well, I mean, to me, to, to me, Charles Williford is is the greatest. Um, you know, he, he wrote Miami Blues is the best. I mean, okay. A ton of great books, but Miami Blues was yeah. the first in a series of the character Hoke Mosley, um, and he wrote four books with that with that character, and they're incredible books about Florida. I, I mean, I love Carl Hyacin too, but there's something about that just the strangeness of Charles Williford's Florida. Right, I'm gonna check world. it out. Um, and uh, you know, my wife Christine Lennon wrote a book that's set in Florida called The Drifter, which oh, I right. think is a great Florida that's novel. Cool. Uh, I'm, I'm biased. Um, set at the you know at the University of Florida in Gainesville around the time hey, of those yeah. uh, serial murders there, when she, she was met, at, at school then. Met my wife my first day at the University of Florida. So um, okay, uh, all right. Um, yeah, it's an endlessly fascinating place that I, you know you're right. Like people get it get it wrong mm-hmm. so so often um, so often. What did you did you guys ever think about? So you know, it's a show about taxidermy, or you know, it's not just about that, yeah. but it's a family. No. Um, and did you ever was there like what did the taxidermy? I know it's coming from the book, and it's what they do. But did you guys talk about that in a way thematically, or you know, what that really Whoa. meant to the show? We absolutely did. Yeah, talk I, about it a lot, and um, you know, just kind of even the person Jessa is in terms of like this shell of, you know, like in a way a shell of a creature and who all of them are, um, (laughs) the people. And so, um, you know, those deer scenes where she's kind of like mounting 
mounting the deer and then it like suddenly like looks real to her in a way that kind of freaks her out and stuff. We loved writing those taxidermy scenes and, you know, we didn't want to make a joke out of taxidermy because, which I think like, I do think like maybe there were certain people who wanted us to make it more of a joke. And I think a lot of people would have taken it in the direction of a joke, but. No, I, I loved that scene. It was strangely like when I, the thing I would most want to see if this was filmed is that scene. To me, it reminds me of the meth cooking scenes in right. Breaking Bad or something where you're just seeing the yeah. process. And in this case, such an incredibly skilled process and seeing her dexterity, seeing just her manual competence in being able to do this very difficult art form, I think would have been just an incredible thing to, to have in a show and something you could you would probably end up going back to several times because it would be really cool to watch just as a visual thing. We we loved that. And I love I think we really loved the idea that Jessa has this like very specific skill that she's so good at but it's like it's almost obsolete at this point like it's so old-fashioned and so like of another place and another time uh I, i think that like conflict within her was like something that we always loved and we love those scenes too of just seeing the process of it seems so interesting and fascinating to us and i do remember some like in the development process like there was talk at some point of like do we do like sort of a take on the uh, six feet under uh, opening where like a different animal dies at the beginning of every episode of our show and then we see it get taxidermied throughout? But then it was like, I don't think people want to see an animal die every week. Um, but but it but it was I, it was a huge part of it for us. And I think Jessica really got right at it. Like we always wanted to treat it with the respect that the characters had for it and take it as seriously as they did because it was like such a great outlet for them and a cool artistic outlet. I did um, like one of the things that also did really speak to me in the book is even though I didn't like spend all my formative years in Florida, I did spend them in a very small town that, you know, probably didn't give like creativity and art the um, respect it deserved right and didn't really value it and so like one of the main things in the book is like this process where Jessica learns to consider herself an artist like through stuffing these three peacocks that are kind of like representative of her Milo and Bryn and like as opposed to like looking at herself as this like hard taxidermist with no feelings you know does kind of become emotional and put meaning into her work and seeing it as something other than like a stuffed, a stuffed carcass type thing. And, um, and I really like, I loved that because I think, you know, there is an art form in it and we weren't like, at first we were like, is, you know, like I remember Tony was like, I did the research. PETA, PETA supports taxidermy because it celebrates celebrates the animal like because we were like are people gonna hate us for showing this and then we were like no we gotta you know you gotta show it like it's it is an art form and and you're smart to start it with a a roadkill 
dear. You know, it's sort of making something out of something that would have otherwise just, you know, been rotted. Um, and it's also just a, such a great attention grabbing opening, uh, which those are hard to come by. And uh, you know, it's great when you have one like this. But it's also, you know, the most annoying note that writers always make fun of is like, can they be, you know, can the main character be good at their job? And <laughs> yeah. sometimes, you know, just sort of roll your eyes at it. But in this case, you realize like, oh, no, the fact that she's so good at doing this, she's such a fuck up in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But she's the fact that she's so good at this kind of makes you love her. And then when you have that scene where the guy, the, that scumbag is like hitting on her in the bar and she just sort of like talks about how she would like mount him. It's just like, that's a great moment um that comes out of someone just being so good at this very specific skill um yeah like it's uh it's just a really um fresh and unique and you know smart uh show and uh, hopefully i haven't like (laughs) made you even more bummed that it that it didn't happen but um but it was just you know and and Always, you can tell when actors just come in and all the you know we do these readings and they're cold and everyone knew just what to do. Like every actor came in and was just like very clear. They knew what they were playing. They knew who they were. Yeah, we really loved which says that the characters listen. are really clear and well drawn. It was really fun to get to sit there and listen to the actors read it. Yeah, I, I we we love this project so much. We had such a great time working on it together. And like I'm not kidding that there are just days that. Jessica would send me scenes and just be like, oh, like I, I, I'm so ready to watch the show. Unfortunately, we're probably not going to get to, but it was very, very awesome to like get to see people engage with it other than us and really see like even more life put into something that, you know, has lived in our heads for so long. Yeah. Um, anything you want to plug before I let you go? I don't think I have anything <laughs> that I'm, I've got to plug at this point. I'm on summer vacation, Andrew. Yeah, my daughter finished first. Yeah, yeah, my daughter finished first grade today. So I'll awesome. plug. congratulations, Emma. Way to go! Uh, fantastic. That's worth a plug. Well, it was so great. I'm I'm so glad uh, to get to meet you guys. And you know, I hope that there's still um, future yet to be written for this project. Thank you. Because Thanks I would so love much. to see it. Thanks. We really appreciate it. Thanks for letting us read it. All right. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. And we have got some more great pilots coming your way. So make sure to subscribe if you aren't already. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me, uh, my co-producer, Ben Blacker, and our associate producer, Noah Finling. And it is edited by Jordan Katz. If you like this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Uh, What helps even more is telling a friend about the show. Uh, Think about who you know who might be into this and let them know. And you can follow us on social media. Find out all the latest. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilots Society. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.